Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Thank you, Jonathan, praise team and choir for leading us in worship. And I would like to just say thank you again uh, for being here and worshiping with us. If you have your Bible this morning, I hope you do. Please turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, in your bulletin, it's, it says that I'm going to be preaching out of Isaiah chapter uh, 9, but that is not true. Uh, we were, had planned on beginning a Christmas series this morning, uh, just going into uh, the, the birth of Christ. Uh, Brother David, again, as you know, his mother has passed away, and so he had to leave uh, and asked me to preach. And, and so uh, I, I decided to just pick up in Luke where uh, Brother David left off. And so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. And I'm going to read these over us this morning, these verses. I want us to, uh, to, to look along in your Bible. Again, as I hope you have your Bible, uh, as I read these. And I want us to just pray that God this morning would help us to better understand the Scripture. I was reading in Psalm 25 this week about how the psalmist calls out to God and he says, teach me your ways, O God, and lead uh, the humble, uh, humble sinners in your way. Teach me your paths of righteousness. And so it is God, uh, it was really humbling. It was, it was God, it's God who gives us understanding of the word of God. And so it's, it's only by the grace of God that we can have any type of spiritual insight into the scriptures. And so I just pray this morning that God would speak to us and teach us through his word. So Luke chapter nine, verse 18 says this, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Verse 21 says, And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let me pray for us. Ask God to, to bless us and to teach us and we will get started. God, we come to you again uh, in dependence admitting and confessing that apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, apart from you, we can understand nothing from your word. And so we just pray that you would teach us this hour. Uh, Lord, give us insight into your scripture. Open our hearts to receive it. God, give us grace and mercy to apply it. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. And so if you've been watching the news lately, you know of the recent shootings in California. And one of the things that is, it's kind of new or newer with the rise of technology, technological increases, is that there's almost a 24-hour news circuit, right? We can turn on the TV, you can access a website, and you can get news updates any time of the day, which has pros and has cons, 
But one of the main things that uh, many people anticipated and understanding about this shooting was the identity of the man who did it. And so they were waiting and waiting and, and building and building uh, about who this man was or who this couple was that had committed these terrible atrocities because in understanding their identity, maybe we could get a better grasp and understanding of why they did what they did. Maybe we could get some clues to, to who they were, their background, their intention for coming and killing people. But that's, that's what we wanted to find out uh, as we understood who they were. Identity is important. We figure out background. We figure out intentions and direction of a person's life by figuring out who they are. And the disciples are in a similar situation as they are being confronted with the identity of Jesus Christ. He has spent two and a half years with his disciples. We know that he ministered to the multitudes and he, we read last week where he fed the 5,000 and met their needs, but his more intimate time throughout his ministry was spent with 12 men. That was his plan to reach the nations and we stand here as a testimony of, of discipleship and how uh, the gospel has been reproduced through these 12 men. But, but he asked the disciples in this text, he, he wants them to understand who he is. Because if they can understand who Jesus is, they can better understand what it is that he has exactly come to do. So let's look at the text this morning. Verse 18, looking at your Bibles, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And so Jesus, all throughout his ministry, secludes away from the crowds to get time alone with the Father, a model for us as he valued and made a priority of having communication with God the Father. And so this is what he is doing at the beginning of our text. And we know that the previous verses, he fed the 5,000. They had just ministered to a massive group of people. So he's secluded away, praying to the Father. And there are different opinions and interpretations of what he was praying for, I don't think. He was praying that the disciples would get the answer right because he ultimately knew what the answer would be that the disciples would give him. But I believe he's praying for his disciples. He's just praying for them. He's interceding on behalf of them to the Father. He understands that, that this confession of Peter and this question that he poses to his disciples is a massive turning point in the ministry of Jesus. This is where he begins to unveil what he exactly came to do. And so he understands that this is going to be a trying time and a trying teaching for the disciples to grasp and to fully understand. And so I believe that he is praying for his disciples. It's a significant shift, again, in the ministry of Jesus. Again, he, he's been investing in these men for two and a half years. And so he, it's been a progressive revelation of who he is through his life, through his teaching, through everything that he did. And so Jesus is praying alone. The disciples were with him. And then he, he poses this question. He has a proposition for them, the proposition. And he says, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And it's very, very important, again, that the disciples understand the true identity of the second person 
of the Trinity. He is strategic in asking this question. It's almost a lead on question. He wants the disciples to have confidence. He wants them to think through everything that's been taught, the life that has been modeled, the signs that have been shown through his miracles to point to who he is. And so he's asking this question for the disciples to think through everything that's been taught. He does this for the confidence of the disciples. And he does this in contrast to the false claims that they're going to give him so that it would reassure them that he is not those things and that he would reaffirm who he is through the confession and profession of Peter. But he says, what do the people say? And let's look at some of the options that they give in the text. Who do the crowds say that I am? It's kind of a broader sense because he's gonna bring it into the disciples next. He says, who are the people saying that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, in, other, in, in, a, in a parallel passage in Matthew 16, they say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so these are the, proposi- these are the things that the disciples have given him. Okay, so who are the people saying that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist in this timeline has already been beheaded by Herod. But many people believe that John the Baptist had risen from the dead and that had continued the miracles. And so they, they said, well, maybe you're the forerunner. People are saying you're the forerunner of Christ, one who is going to come and prepare the way. Signs and wonders accompanied Jesus, and they knew that the forerunner, there would be signs and wonders accompanying him as well. But even John the Baptist in his ministry, people thought that he was the Messiah. And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm unworthy to even untie his sandal. And so he's pointing to the Christ. And so people were pointing to Jesus and thinking that he was John the Baptist. And he says, no, I'm not John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. Others said, Elijah. And we know that that prophecy in Malachi 4, 6 says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so again, these are some of the the things that are going through the minds of the disciples because they're expecting a forerunner. They're expecting Elijah to come. And then they said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so that they knew, they knew that before the Messiah would come, that these things would be there. There would be a forerunner. There would, there would be prophets. There would be signs and wonders accompanying he who would prepare the way for Christ Jesus. And then they say Jeremiah. And, and, and if you read and you do some study on why they even proposed Jeremiah, there was, there was an old story that can be found in First or Second Maccabees. And it talks about how Jeremiah, before the Messiah would come, that he would come to, uh, to redeem the people. He would come to redeem the people. That uh, that in the Old Testament times, uh, in between the coming of Jesus and the last Old Testament prophet, uh, there, were, there were many, many stories. And so it was almost an old wives tale that Jeremiah would come and he would take the altar of the incense because the Gentiles had desecrated it and he would restore it to its proper place. And so there was even an expectation, a false expectation of Jeremiah coming. And there are many other voices chiming in throughout the ministry of Jesus and trying to point and decide, like, who, who is this guy? Who is this guy that is teaching? Who is this guy that is preaching? The Pharisees and other religious elitists of the day, 
Many of them said, as they said in John chapter 10, verse 20, he has a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? And the disciples, I mean, who were they to disagree with the Pharisees and the scribes, right? And so they're, they're kind of anxious and giving uh, this, this testimony that he is the Christ. They were unlearned men. The scribes, men viewed as great teachers of the law, said that he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons, as we saw in Mark chapter 3. What about his own family? Right? What were some of the opinions of Jesus' family about who Jesus was in Mark chapter 3? And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So his own family doesn't even understand who he is. And ultimately, Jesus had not fulfilled the expectations right, of the disciples and who the Messiah should be. We know that their preconceptions about who the Messiah would be is that he would be a military ruler, is that he would set up a physical, external, universal kingdom. They were expecting him to free them from the bondage of the Roman Empire. Israel would become a world power, a dominant military force. And not only that, the teaching that Jesus had begun to teach did not line up with Again, their preconceptions as to who Jesus should be and what he should be saying. In Matthew chapter 5, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the very first words that come out of the mouth of Jesus completely destroys these preconceptions as to who the Messiah should be and what he should be teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Blessed are the poverty-stricken in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so, This, again, is destroying these preconceptions as to who the Messiah should be and what he should be teaching. And even at the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people are amazed at his teachings because he is one who spoke with authority. There was such a contrast in the lives and the teachings of Jesus and that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so even the disciples, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, they're questioning Right? We, we preach through uh, Jesus calming the storm. And what, did, what, what question did the disciples pose after they saw him completely exercise sovereignty over the created order? They said, what manner of man is this? And so in their minds, they still were struggling with, with who Jesus was. Was he the Messiah? Was he the promised one? In Matthew 11, John the Baptist, we read before he was beheaded, what did... did he even questioned, right? Some of the disciples of John approached Jesus and they said, listen, are you the one? I mean, John the Baptist in the beginning of his ministry points to Jesus as the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, he of all people should have had full assurance. But again, these preconceptions as to who Jesus would be did not match up with maybe some of John's preconceptions. And so he asked this question, are you the one. And so the, car, the carpenter, the, that's who you think the Messiah is. These were some of the thoughts going through the From Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And there are many popular opinions today about who Jesus is, is there not? I mean, there are tons of opinions. He's the most polarizing figure that has ever existed. Muslims say that Jesus, what, was a prophet, that he was not crucified on a cross, that he will return, but he is not God. The Hindu believes that Jesus is just one of millions of gods. The Jew believes that Jesus was a great prophet and teacher, but he is not God. The Mormon believes that Jesus 
was the first baby born to God in heaven, when God in a physical body had relations with Mary, his own daughter. He is the spirit brother of Lucifer, is what the Mormons believe. The the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was once the archangel Michael before he came to the earth. In their view, Jesus is not God in the flesh. And atheists will completely deny that Jesus even ever existed, which is just awful history, but it's just a a blatant disregard for what is clearly seen throughout the pages of history. So they'll just say that he just didn't even exist. The agnostic just doesn't know what to believe about Jesus. There are infinite options. And these are the more clear attacks on the person of Christ, on who he is. But there is a much more subtle attack that is alive and well in what is considered contemporary Christianity. It is a popular opinion that he is a, a, he is a footnote, really, to our lives. And he is a footnote to a season such as Christmas. It's, we've heard things such as, Jesus is my co-pilot. And, I, and I'm not being mean-spirited here when I say that, uh, that, that, that that's wrong. But think about that logic. He's your, so you and Jesus are flying the, your life together? I mean, you know what I mean? So these are some of the popular opinions about who Jesus is. He's the man upstairs, you know, the big man upstairs. We have these, these cultural ideas of the identity of God or the identity of Jesus. He was, a, he was a good guy or he's a side note to my political party. These ideas must be confronted with the truth. And ultimately in our day, amongst millennials in my generation, after the enlightenment period, I mean, you have a group of people who say that Jesus is whatever you want him to be, right? You can ultimately define who Jesus is for you. And our tendency is not to exalt the identity of Christ, but our tendency is to to demean the identity of Christ and to lower him. But the identity of Jesus will set the path of these men, right? He's setting the trajectory of of the lives of these men forever, forever right? Until they pass away. And so it is with us. There is not a more important question that we could answer or ask this morning as to who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say that I am? And so he kind of brings it in a little more personal. He says, who do the crowd say that I am? Right? And they give him some options and they weren't trying to demean him there because those were honestly offices of high regard in the, in, in the first century to a first century Jew but they fell short because they left Jesus at just a man or just a prophet. So he brings it in a little closer. Look at the text. He says, then he said to to them, but who do you say that I am? And so Jesus gets a little more personal, right? And the you really can be translated you all or Southern y'all. So he's asking the disciples. So this answer is not just from Peter, but is from the disciples. It is, it, is a, it, is a, it is a collective understanding of who Jesus is. He personalizes it. The multitudes Jesus understands are fickle. He's seen that all throughout his ministry, but he has to know that these men are grasping and gaining confidence in who he is because the future of the church rests upon it. So this is go time for the disciples, right? This is a massive, massive question. This is like if my Greek final were one question. Blake, amen? If it were just one question and I could get it wrong 
aright? I mean, this is, this is the magnitude of this question, the magnitude of this answer. I'm having a hard time comprehending, but it weighed, weighed, it weighed heavy on the future of the disciples in the ministry of Jesus. And so Peter answers. He's been referred to as the apostolic choir director. And so he speaks up for the disciples and he says, you are the Christ of God. And in Matthew chapter 16, the parallel passage, Matthew gives even a, a better description of the answer that Peter gave. It says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the son of the living God. And so this answer is massive. It's huge. Peter gets it right. Most of the time we know that Peter doesn't get it right, does he? Uh, he a lot of times he puts his foot in his mouth and he's quick to speak up, but, but he gets it right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so what he is saying, he's, he, he's recognizing Jesus as the anointed one, right? As, as we celebrate the season, as we look at the, the coming of the promised Messiah, this is the time where Peter fully understands, right? We can look back over church history. We can look back throughout all the scriptures. We have the full canon of scripture. We have all of it. And so we can look back and understand that he was the promised Messiah. But I mean, try and place yourselves in the first century in Peter's shoes as he's coming to this realization that this is the man that has been promised. This is the one we're waiting for. He is the anointed one. He is the prophet that should come who speaks on behalf of God. We learned in Hebrews 1, he speaks on behalf of God because he is God. And he doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He says, I say unto you, He's the great prophet that is promised that will speak on behalf of God. He is the eternal king, Micah 5, 2, that's promised that will be born in Bethlehem. They were anticipating a great king to come. The king who, who comes from the royal line of David, who was supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit, completely void of a sin nature. The Magi came and validated his kingship. At his birth, he is the great king whose rule is throughout all generations for all time. He is the eternal high priest. I mean, these are the things that are they're recognizing this is the man, this is the prophet, this is the king, this is the anointed one, the anointed offices in the Old Testament of prophet, of priest, and of king. And so he is the eternal high priest who makes intercession for his people. He entered the true holy of holies and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He stands in the gap in between the people uh, and God because of their sinfulness and his holiness, making peace by the blood of his cross, making a way to the Father through himself. After ma making purification for, for sins, Hebrews 1 tells us that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So he, this is him. Peter gets it right. And no doubt this was a joyous time in Matthew 16, there's a greater description of the blessing that, that Jesus gives uh, to Peter after his profession. But I mean, they, these, are, these are things that the disciples were going through their mind in Psalm 2. These are just some references, if you want to write these down, of just some messianic prophecies that you can look, look up in the scriptures because these are the things that were going through the minds of the disciples. Psalm 2 speaks of the Messiah as the one whom God will install his king over Israel the Messiah will be given the nations. He will inherit the nations. He'll be given the nations as in his inheritance and he will rule over those who seek to oppose him. You can read that through Psalm 2. Psalm 22 
portrays the suffering of the Messiah. In Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 were probably two texts that the Pharisees, the New Testament Jew, again, were, were overlooking, right? Maybe didn't have a, uh, an understanding of what Jesus would do when he came, but it portrays the suffering of the Messiah. It gives us the, the as Jesus fulfills this in his death, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 45, written in celebration of the king's marriage. Psalm 72 depicts the righteous reign of the king of Israel who judges the people with righteousness and justice. And we're gonna see that in Revelation 20 at the great white throne judgment when Jesus judges all men perfectly because he himself is perfect. He's the one who will answer the cries of the afflicted and will bring upon them deliverance and will execute justice to the nations. As we read in Psalm 67 this morning, he will judge the nations with equity and with uprightness because he himself is upright and righteous. Psalm 110 speaks of the installation of the Messiah at the right hand of God who rules over his enemies right before they profess him Lord. He is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He will come to the earth and destroy his enemies. He is the priest forever who will reign eternally. We see in Jonah, right? We see a depiction of the death, the burial and the resurrection of Christ as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and he tells uh, the first century Jews, the, the sign that you're looking for, the only sign that you're gonna get is the sign of Jonah. Ezekiel 34, he says, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so even in the life of David, as he's a shepherd, Jesus comes in on the New Testament and says, I am the good shepherd. In Daniel, we see one as the son of man. And when Jesus asked this question to the disciples, he says, who do people say that the son of man is? And so he's giving them a picture there out of Daniel that he is the son of man in Daniel chapter seven. And Jesus also points out in Matthew chapter 16, when after Peter makes this confession, that it, it's not flesh and blood that reveals this to Peter, right? Peter did not, come up with this on his own accord, but it was revealed to him by God the Father. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so as we evaluate who Jesus is and we look at our lives, Stephen Lawson says this, he says, no church, no ministry, no believer can rise any higher than its exalted view of the Lord Jesus. Tell me what you think of Christ and I will tell you the state of your worship, the state of your holiness and your service in evangelism. A high view of Christ leads to a high regard for the word of God, a passionate pursuit of holiness and a high and holy regard for the church that he purchased with his own blood, a driving commitment to reach the world for Christ. But a low view of Christ produces low standards of holiness, low involvement in spreading the word of God. Everything hinges on who the Lord Jesus is and we need an awe-inspiring, spirit-produced insight and vision of who the Son of God is. If there is ever a time to specifically and definitively define the Son of God, it is today. It is today in evangelical Christianity. Our doctrine has become so soft and so vague 
for fear of offending someone. Worship songs sometimes can reflect this. And, and, and sometimes I look at even hymns and contemporary music and some of the songs that are written, they could have been written to, to deist. I mean, they could have been written by deists to just any deity because they're so vague and they're so nonspecific about doctrine. And if you, if you know anything about the cultural uh, state of Christianity, it's almost produced what's called, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. It is just a vague nothingness of doctrine. It is, it is dissolved any specific doctrine and you can just recognize God as being God. He wants me to live a good life. Uh, and it's void of the truth of scripture. Spurgeon says this, he says, beware of a misty religion. Beware of that which is without form, for it is sure to be void. Beware of that which is undefined and indefinable because there is nothing solid in it. And we must return to a high view of Jesus Christ. We are not prone to exalt him. We know that by our own sinful nature. Even as Christians, our tendency is to lower the person of Christ. And as a result, lowering the standards and the call that he has placed on our life to live holy because he himself is holy. And we need to beg the spirit of God as I do and I have been this week to, to give me a better vision and understanding, understanding and comprehension of the son of God. John 16, 14 says that one of the works of the spirit of God is to exalt and glorify Jesus in the hearts of his people. And I'm begging God to do that. We must exalt Christ because when we lower Christ, we exalt ourselves. And a high view of Christ is going to lead to high and holy living. But we see this profession. It's a big deal that Peter got this right. It really is. It's significant as God reveals this to him. But, but Peter still has a limited understanding of who Jesus was or really what Jesus came to do as we're going to see in the next text. But we've, we've almost left it here as, as uh, evangelicals. We've almost left following Jesus at a mere profession. And, and it's clear from this passage that professions are not enough and they don't give a full detail of a person's understanding of the work of Christ. Peter, a disciple who had spent two and a half years with Jesus, makes this profession, but he still does not understand what Jesus had come to do. He did not understand that Jesus had to suffer and die. He didn't understand the full work of the gospel. And again, many times in our churches, we leave it out of profession. And I beg for professions. I want children. I want my son. I want, uh, I want teenagers to make professions of the Lord Jesus, but we cannot leave it there. We cannot say just because a person has made a profession of faith that that, that, that automatically deems them saved. That You have to have that right, undoubtedly, right? You have to know who Jesus is. You have to profess him as Lord. You have to call out to him to save you, but, but we cannot leave it there. We must labor to make sure that people have a, a correct understanding of the, of the full gospel. And even if they do, what does James 2.19 tell, tell us? That, that even the demons believe, right, in the Son of God. That their doctrine is flawless. 
They know exactly who the second person of the Trinity is, yet they're going to be cast into hell with the devil himself. And so as we move on, Jesus begins to unveil, right? The disciples are pumped, high fives going around. Peter got it right. He he understands. He usually gets it wrong, but he got this one right. And it's almost as if like Jesus kind of throws this in. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but like, uh, like, let's say, for instance, that I'll call Hillary. All right, I'll call Hillary up and I'll say, and she'll, you know, she's at work. She's like, how's Bo been today? Well, he's been good. We've had a good day. Uh, he's eating good. And then I kind of drop like a bomb on her at the end of that conversation. It's been good. The, the house is on fire, but we're fine. Talk to you later. Love you. Bye. It's almost like, I mean, Jesus, like this profession of faith comes in, in the person of Christ. It, it's right. It's correct. It's good. Then it's almost like Jesus is like, but I've got to die. You realize, you realize that, right? I am the, I am the Messiah. You, you, you know, we're a step closer, but I've got to be crucified. In a, in a first century Jew, crucifixion or crucified was not an adjective that they would have added to Messiah. That's not, that, in their understanding of what Jesus came to do, man, it was not to be crucified. They knew what crucifixion was. They lived in the first century. But not only in this instance, but in, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six other times in the ministry of Jesus, he reinforces this truth after this first revelation. Because he, again, wants the disciples to begin to change their thinking as to what he had come to do on the earth. He had come to suffer and die. Matthew 17 9, Matthew 17, 22, Matthew 20, 18, Matthew 26, 2, Matthew 26, 12, Matthew 26, 31. I want to challenge you, seriously, even in the book of Luke, after this text, just read through the rest of the book of Luke and, and see how many times that Jesus again references his death and what he came to do. And he reinforces it for depth. And for clarity, he wants to make clear how necessary this teaching is. And all throughout his ministry, even, I mean, the claim of John the Baptist becomes more clear as Jesus reinforces it. The Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What what was the purpose of a lamb to be sacrificed and to die as a penalty for sin? And so this is why he came right? He, he's got to help them understand that I have got to die. The baby in the manger, I mean, that, that is Jesus in full deity and full humanity, fulfilling all the promises of the Messiah, bringing peace on earth through his death. But again, it's to his death. And so as we celebrate Christmas and we look at the birth of Christ, it's always in light of the cross, right? Because that, ultimately that is where he is headed. And many people throughout that day, did not understand nor accept his teaching on this. But this is why he came. This is the purpose of celebrating Christmas because the Messiah has come to die in the place of sinners, to make a sin offering for guilt. He was was trying to reveal to them what we call substitutionary atonement. He had to be beaten and bruised for our iniquities. He is bringing Isaiah 53 to a new light to the disciples. He had to endure stripes for our healing. He came to make peace by the blood of his cross. He came to vindicate the name of God. The the sole purpose of Jesus coming to the world is to vindicate the name of God. We read in Exodus last week in Sunday school about God, Moses asked, asked God to reveal himself. He says, show me your glory. 
God comes down and he proclaims his name, that he is a God who is loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving of iniquity. And then the very next line says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so how in the world can a God be both forgiving, but will not clear the guilty? And it's a picture and points us to what Jesus is explaining to the disciples. He comes to vindicate the name of God, to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. He came to fulfill perfectly the sacrificial system in all its meaning. He came to sit in the place of ruined sinners, the judgment seat of God, so that we would not have to. What are we without this teaching? And it was so essential that Jesus begins unfolding throughout his ministry to the disciples. This is why I came. It is by the works of Christ and God's grace so that no man may boast. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. We cannot neglect, especially in this season, celebrating the birth of Christ without looking to the death of Christ. The birth of Christ is the greatest miracle that has ever happened. The the, the fact that God somehow wrapped himself in humanity, weak humanity, limited himself. But that's pointing to the greater act of him dying on the cross. And we and we, we must return to this teaching. This is not a secondary doctrine for Christians either. The work of Christ is not something that we just move past. It's a daily gospel that we have to preach to ourselves and reminder that we can't earn the favor of God, that we are righteous only by the sacrifice, the death, the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. In studying this, this is why, this is why I encourage just deep, deep study into the scriptures. I don't want us to turn into mechanical, stoic Christians with our heads full of knowledge, failing to live on mission for God, show mercy to people, sharing the gospel. I don't want us to, to, to be in our studies all day long, just fixed on the scripture, but I am encouraging a deeper study in the person and the work of Jesus because ultimately that's what this text is. It's who is Jesus, what has Jesus done? is that he is the Messiah and he came to die and all of those implications. But we need to return to a deep study of of the work of Christ. Every time I study, every time I dig deeper into what Christ has done, there are two effects. It humbles me and it exalts Jesus. It makes more clear that I couldn't earn it and that only Jesus could earn it. And so that should be our focus. And Peter, man, Peter, 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 Peter. Matthew 16 gives a a better account because Mark leaves out where Peter rebukes Jesus. Why don't you flip to Matthew 16 and let's read that text. We see in verses continuing after 17, Matthew 16, 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He gets it right. Blood, flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, on that proclamation, I'm going to build my church. Christ will build his church. 
He strictly charged the disciples to know when he was the Christ. He begins to unfold from that time, starting in verse 21. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. Uh, must be killed on the third day raised. And look at verse 22. Man, Peter says, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And so again, there's this time of rejoicing as Peter gets it right. Man, he's, got, he's made this profession. He understands who Jesus is. Jesus unfolds, I've got to die. Peter says, no, that does not fit into my understanding of who the Messiah is or what the Messiah do. So he says, he rebukes Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. Far be it from you. And Jesus responds, man, he responds very harshly. He says, get behind me. And he calls him Satan, which can be translated accuser or opposer. So Peter was doing so well. He rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says, and look, look at the second part of that. He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so in the rebuke of Peter, Jesus rebukes him. And he, and he calls him Satan because it is a satanic mindset that would keep Jesus from going to the cross. Satan would have loved that because he understands that the cosmic battle, right, is ended when ultimately Jesus resurrects from the dead. He, Satan understands and knows ultimately what's gonna happen. He knows his demise is imminent. And so removing the cross from the work of Christ has its origins really in the pits of hell, as we see. The first profession of Peter was from God, right? He's been revealed to him. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And the second profession has satanic thinking at its root. It has the pride of man at its root. It has the logic of man at its root. And it ultimately, if you look at it, it has the comfort of man at its root. You will not suffer and die. And so satanic thinking disregards the work of Jesus on the cross and ultimately will leave salvation up to men. And Satan would love that and is loving that as many today are trusting in their own good works, removing the cross from Christianity as if it is something that they themselves could earn. Satanic thinking has the comfort and ease of man at the center of it. But the cross is the only hope for Peter. And that's why he rebukes him. He says that thinking comes from Satan and it removes the cross from Christianity. And again, if you take a look at the cultural atmosphere, is that, man, we have removed the, the cross from Christianity. Because if you look in Matthew 16 and in Luke chapter 9 at the very next verses, Jesus begins to unfold the, the call of Christ on your life. And so Peter tries to say, listen, no, no, you're not going to die. He says, get behind me, Satan. And then he reassures Peter that the cross that Christ is going to have to endure is the same cross that you yourself will have to endure if you're going to be my disciple. Anybody would come after me. Must take up his cross and must follow me daily. I'm going to let Brother David preach that text. But there is a type of Christianity today that demands nothing, requires nothing. Martin Luther says it is worth nothing. And as a Christian, your lifelong battle will be against the satanic thinking that has your best interest at heart 
and not God's. Easy believism is what we call, call it. It sends droves and droves of droves of people to hell and as if there is such a gospel to where you can just believe in Jesus as Savior and not obediently follow him by carrying your cross on a daily basis. That is not the gospel. It rids them of the necessity of the work of Jesus on the cross. It Not only does it produce a false gospel that makes us right with God, but it produces a false understanding of what it even means to follow Jesus. It whispers, you're good enough. You're good enough. You're not that bad. It whispers, relax, be a good person. You can have him as savior, but don't, don't worry about obedience. And so this morning in conclusion, I want us to evaluate our profession as a church. Are we constantly digging into the endless and eternal reservoir that is the identity of Jesus Christ? Do we have a high and exalted view of Jesus? Do you, as an individual, have a high and exalted view of Jesus? And can that be reflected in the way that you live your life? Right? If I were to look at your life and I were to ask, who is Jesus to them? Could it be clear that the Lordship of Christ is so evident in the decisions that you make that I would have a clear answer, that God would have a clear answer. Do we really know who he is for those who are lost? Do you understand the person of, of Christ? And do you understand the, the work of Christ? Who he is determines so much for us. And is he properly reflected in your heart and in your life? And are we compelled by who he is and what he has done on behalf of sinners to therefore take up our cross and to follow him daily. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.